The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Hey, Johnny. Cool, man. What's going on? We ready to go or what? Fucking... Welcome to the two-man power trip of wrestling. I am your host, JP John Paz. Today, we have a very special guest. He's a WWE Hall of Famer, former WWE World Heavyweight Champion, former three-time WWE Tag Champion, European Champion, U.S. Champion, Intercontinental Champion. Whew, he's done it all. Mr. JBL, John Bradshaw Layfield. Welcome to the two-man power trip. How are you doing? John, thank you. I've been looking forward to coming on your show. Great stuff. What have you been up to? What's going on in your world? You know, I've worked uh, in the last, say, 10 years with kids in poverty, and that's what I really enjoy doing. Uh, I still work for WWE part-time. I guess part-time is what you call it. I, I go in uh, every other pay-per-view just about. Uh, me and Jerry Lawler kind of switch out and do the pre-show. Uh, that's, you know, enough for me to get back and kind of tip my toe in the water. But the main thing I enjoy doing, I work with this wonderful group out of Memphis, Memphis inner city rugby that works with kids in at risk, low income areas. And we, they do wonderful things using sport as their primary carrot to get the kids in. They have a hundred percent graduation rate, hundred percent non-incarceration rate, hundred percent of kids are going somewhere after high school, either college, military or trade school. They just do wonderful work. And I'm going to put on a golf tournament there this spring, uh, which involves a lot of my time. That, that's what I enjoy doing. I've been to Malawi, Zimbabwe, uh, the slums of India. I really enjoy working with kids that uh, are disadvantaged because of where they were born. How'd you get started with that? Like, how'd you get involved? 
2010, I went to the soccer football World Cup down in Cape Town, and I met Nick Keller, who ran Beyond Sport, and he asked me to go visit a shanty town the next day and use this, see this program called Mighty Milers that was using running to help kids get educated and get out of the shanty town and give them a chance in life and give them options. And I thought it was just fantastic. So when I went back to Bermuda, where I had just started living, I set up the same type program, called it uh, Beyond Rugby Bermuda, we use rugby as our sport, worked with at-risk uh, single-parent kids mainly, uh, and had really good uh, success because it became a true island-wide initiative. And a lot of people, great people really stepped up. And through that effort, I got to go do and visit a lot of different programs around the world. I, I really enjoy it. That's a little bit different than the heel JBL character. I mean, you know, a lot of you're doing a lot of good stuff. doesn't seem like JBL, you know what I mean? The, the, who we saw on TV. <laughs> I was down in Malawi and I was trying, I don't speak uh, uh, Sochi. Uh, and so I was trying to communicate with these kids. And, you know, in, in Africa, you have several countries that have different uh, tribal languages and so many different languages. I didn't do a good job of communicating. And finally, one of the kids uh, said, you know, Kofi. And I said, Kofi Kingston? And I'm in the middle of nowhere. 9% of the country has electricity. Only nine, and it's one of the poorest wow. areas in the world. But somewhere, you know, it was when Kofi Mania was running wild, and somewhere they had gotten uh, WWE television. And thanks to that uh, introduction from WWE and Kofi, I, I said, "Yeah, I know Kofi." And one of the kids said, "New Day," and it was. And after that, we were able to communicate uh, fairly well. But we got to talk a lot about wrestling. So not much with the Hill persona, JBL. But I do owe a lot to WWE for opening up so many doors. Isn't it crazy? Wrestling could be like the international language. Like even if you don't speak the same language, people know wrestling and they know wrestlers and you can kind of start a conversation, communicate through wrestling. It's it's like the unspoken language almost. It's amazing. I was in the slums of Mumbai and Delhi and you see kids with a, a Ray Mysterio shirt. You know, these kids wow. don't have hardly any money at all. And maybe they came through a, a donation from WWE through somebody else and those kids got it, but you know, they somehow get the program in and they love it. You know, it's, it's a wrestling as a lane. It's something that you can watch very easily. It's just good versus evil and a good guy, to bad guy. And so it's, it's pretty easy to watch and translates to other areas and to other countries. Now with wrestling, you obviously have a ton of good stories and so does Jerry Briscoe. Tell us about the podcast and what's going on because it started off really as a great YouTube show. You guys kind of developed into a great podcast. Well, thanks. Jerry's a good friend of mine. We've had fun telling stories for years to each other and we're on the thread uh, chain like everybody else says, you know, where you text people stupid memes and, you know, all kinds of stupid stuff. And during COVID, we're texting each other stories. You know, that remember when this happened or Greg Valentine did this or you know, Manny Fernandez. And one of the guys said, why don't you do the podcast with this? And our idea was never really to do a podcast. It was never really to, you know, just do something for people out there or make money. It was, we wanted to do something where the boys could come on and have fun. So we started inviting our old friends on just to basically a Zoom call and we recorded it. And it was just telling old stories, road stories, whatever it was. And it's kind of taken off. It's done really well. We've got picked up by some, several different uh, platforms. And now Stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw is everywhere. It's a podcast. And I'm still not sure what that is, but we, we have a lot of fun. You guys are now on Podcast Heat, which has kind of taken over the podcast game a little bit. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I'm excited to work with Podcast Heat. I, you know, I, I never dreamed that what Jerry and I were doing would be something that we would actually do and you know, put out there and people would 
want to see. <laughs> just we're just old guys telling stories. You know, we had Stan Hansen on just telling stories about Japan. And you know, we had Jerry talking about the time when him and Terry Funk got arrested in an island in uh, Japan, Japan, and uh, they have a picture of them waiting there on the police waiting to show up. You know, tell them about the free birds and the moonwalking into a ceiling fan. There's just so many crazy old stories. We had Tommy Rich on one day talking about the time that the Freebird, Gerald Briscoe, ran over him in a Lincoln, which is a true story. It's probably also a felony. <laughs> yeah. just, guys, we just have fun telling stories. We, we don't try to bury anybody. We don't try to have that guy has an axe to grind that our show is not the place to do it. We just want to tell old stories that most people haven't heard and have the legends themselves tell those stories and come on and tell it in the first person narrative, which I, I don't know if it goes on anywhere else. I don't really watch a lot of stuff. So, but it's, for us, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Very cool. It's awesome to get the interaction. Cause sometimes when you get the wrestlers, they don't want to give all the stories, but if it's you and Jerry and they're rolling, you know, the good stories just kind of just flow. It's a different dynamic. There's no doubt about it. I, I watch a lot of interviews with guys getting ready for interviews, you know, because you think you know people, but you really don't. You know, you don't know their how they broke in. You don't know all the people they knew and the different events that molded their career. So I watch a lot of interviews getting ready for the interviews that we do. And I think there is a different dynamic. You know, we're contemporaries. We're, we were friends. We're friends with most of these guys. That's how we get their numbers and how they agree to come on our show. In fact, you know, we had some guys tell us they were insulted. We hadn't asked them yet. You know, we, we don't like bugging anybody. You know, so it took us forever to get Ron and Godfather. And I saw Godfather and he said, why am I not on your show? I said, well, you're my buddy. I don't want to bug you. You know, not that I'm not bugging Stan Anson or the Freebirds or anybody else. It's just, you know, I, I hate to feel like I'm calling in a chip. And, and uh, so it's to us, it's, it is a different dynamic when you're talking about old friends, guys, you would have been in bars and cars with telling the same old stories in an unfiltered version, which I, I think is a very unique to what we do. And it's pretty cool because obviously you're from a different generation. Jerry's from a different generation. So you meld together. And obviously you guys were together a lot in the WWF, but different generations. You have a bunch of different stories to kind of throw together, which is great. It's unbelievable. You know, there, there's so many uh, incredible stories. You know, Ricky and Robert, especially, especially Ricky as a singles, was on fire in the 80s. You know, Tommy Rich was as big a baby face as there was. Yeah, You, you can go over – in every territory, you had some major, major star. And I think a lot of that's lost over time. And because of that, a lot of stories are lost uh, over time as well. So we, we enjoy being in that 70s and 80s and maybe even early 90s. And in some cases, 60s. Uh, we had Jerry Jared on just recently talking about uh, Mario Galento, a big fight he had with, which I'd never heard before uh, in Memphis. And I enjoy that part of you know bringing forward history that really isn't known. And we still got so much left untapped. We hadn't had anybody really from Don Barr's territory. We hadn't anybody really from the, the Staples Center. We hadn't had a, a star that, uh, you know, in, in Mexico, Puerto Rico. You know, I'd love to have Tony St. Clair on from Europe, who's a dear friend of mine. We had Fit Finley on. But St. Clair was – he was as good a babyface as there was in the world, man, during the 80s and 90s. He and Finley had some incredible matches. And that's stuff we enjoy talking about. 
that's pretty cool. And then the interesting thing is some people think, I think maybe younger fans, like, oh, Jerry Briscoe, uh, the Stooge. And, like, they don't realize, like, oh, him and his, well, obviously his brother was one of the best ever. But it's like, okay, he's an awesome wrestler, but he's a little bit of a hooker or a shooter. Like, he's legit <laughs> tough. Like, I, Dr. Tom would do a show with him. always talked about it. He said, like, oh, you don't mess with Jerry Briscoe. I said, really? And, like, is that true? Is that those stories true of him not beating guys up in the back, but, you know, he could, if he wanted to, he could beat you up. Like Jerry, Steiner Brothers kind of thing. Jerry get that sideways stare at you after he's had a few uh, beers, and uh, you know at that point you're in trouble because somebody's getting stretched. <laughs> yeah, I tried Jerry, I don't know how many times, tens of times. I say thousands, but it's probably tens of times I've tried Jerry. You know, we've had a few drinks. We're out somewhere. One time we woke up and we're looking at each other. We're sitting on a bus in Germany and he's all scraped up and I'm all scraped up and I'm trying to figure out what happened. And somebody told us, well, you guys get ever get tired of wrestling on the parking lot last night? And neither <laughs> one of us remembered it. <laughs> yeah. Jerry, and that's when Jerry, that's when Jerry had already retired. I mean, him at a young age, I mean, he was, he was one of the best. His brother, by the way, I think it was, this, I can't remember, 66, 67 because uh, I inducted them both in the uh, WWE Hall of Fame. Jerry's the one that hired me. And his brother didn't give up one point the entire NCAA tournament. That means he never got taken down. And he's one of the greatest shooters of all time. And so is Jerry. You know, his brother was, you know, maybe a, a step higher because he was, he was a bigger. He was a, a, a true heavyweight. Yep. But Jerry was <laughs> Jerry was a hooker. Jerry, Jerry was good. He was very good at what he did. Guys tried him all the time. Guys, And he loved it. He loved somebody – you know, be in their suits trying to see if they could out wrestling. I just love those like f- funny stories where it's like, oh, that guy's not that tough, or, or he would he played a stooge in WWF, and then it's like, no, he's beating up guys in the back, like consistently beating everybody up. Like he's tough as nails. I love those. Yeah, he consistently beat up everybody. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I got him a couple times, but it's because I snuck up on him and stole him. I didn't. I didn't. It wasn't a fair fight. And before he could get me, I ran. So it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't like I won and was dominant. I did win. And then he got me back like the next 30 times straight. Like Dr. Tom always said, he's like, I'm not really a fighter, but I knew not to mess with Jerry because he'd kick my ass. And like, it's just funny to hear that. It's like, wow, really? You couldn't get, he's like, no way. He'd kill me. Oh yeah. Jerry was, Jerry was an, one of the best shooters. Uh, and I don't, I don't know anybody better. You know, of course you had Shamrock later and Severnil that came in and Shamrock, you know, Shamrock was a different level than the rest of the world. You know, right. He's UFC champion. It'd have been great to see. Uh, MMA back in the say 60s and 70s and see Jack and Jerry in MMA uh, and try to compete and see how they do and legend wise to say when guys like uh, Ken Shamrock who to me is one of the greatest if not the greatest UFC champion of all time if you have that strong wrestling base that goes a long way and, and obviously those the Briscoes of course had such a strong wrestling base I would have loved to seen that and even Harley Race or something like guy that tough in MMA it'd be interesting to see yeah, we had uh, Ken Shamrock on our show, you know, which is a real treat. It's just so much fun to hear. It, 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 Ken's Ken's one of the smartest guys as far as uh, analytical fighting. You know, he knew how to, to destroy the myth, as he said it, against Gracie. It was really interesting to hear him break that down. Jerry's the same way. He'll tell you how to break. That's one of the reasons I think he's such a great talent scout for WWE. He discovered so much of the talent that is out there today and has been out there the last, say, 20, 30 years because he's so analytical about it. He and Ken Shamrock are very similar in that respect. So Jerry's actually how you got hired from WWE? Like, how did that go? Like, how does he recruit you? Is he watching you in CWA and with Otto Vance? Does he see you in Texas? Like, where does he actually see you? He saw me with Salvio Vega in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. It was uh, – 
Bruce Pritchard and, and Pat Patterson somehow got a tape that I'd sent them a tape years before and literally a couple years before, and somehow they got to it. And somebody told me we were in Bremen, Germany. It was cold as it can be. I was working for Otto up there, and Otto and Peter both ran Bremen together. I think uh, Peter ran Hanover by himself, and Otto ran Graz by himself, and then Peter and Otto both ran Vienna together. So we're at the end of the tour near the Christmas season, and I got it till somebody told me, said, hey, the WWE is going to call you. And literally, it was on a payphone on a street in the middle of Germany. So I don't know how they got the number. I never did even ask. I just couldn't believe that they had found me somehow and wanted to talk to me. And it was Bruce Pritchard. He was there with Pat. And he said, we want you to come through and do a tryout match on the way through. And so I went to uh, Philadelphia. It was snowing. And uh, Tony Guerrero threw me out of the back. Uh, you know, he didn't think I was supposed to be there. And literally threw me out. And I thought, you know, okay, I'll just oh. leave. I, had a, I was going to WCW next. And uh, it was snowing so bad, I couldn't leave. The, the airport was closed. So I thought, well, I'll go ahead and go to Bethlehem. I went to Bethlehem, met Dutch Mantel, and he goes, well, I'll walk out with you. So he walked out with me, and ger literally Gerald Briscoe saw me for the first time in the ring with Savio Vega, went and got Vince McMahon. He goes, have you seen this kid they brought in from Europe? He said he's a big kid, played a little pro football, but trained by Brad Reingans. And he said, we need to sign him. And Vince said, we'll sign him. And, and that was it. Vince never saw me. Jerry saw me. Uh, it was just, but it was just in a trial match and Jerry pulled me aside and said, I want you to sign you. He and JJ Dillon pulled me aside and said, we want to sign you. We understand you're going to WCW. And I said, yeah, I am. And they said, well, give us your word. You won't go. And I said, will you give me your word? I have a contract. And Gerald said, yes, we shook hands. And Gerald and I have literally been really close friends ever since. That's great too, because to me, like if they see you, obviously good worker, but it's like he's young, but this guy is huge. Like, oh, Vince would love that guy. You always hear that, like, oh, this big guy, Vince loves big guys. I mean, you just kind of fit that mold. How many big guys from WWF at that point? You know, a little obviously around oh, the same we time. Had a huge locker Duke room. Duke the Dumpster, Drosy, Diesel, Yoko, Razor. I mean, all you guys were massive guys. Yeah, you had a, a really big roster. They got a huge roster now. I mean, you got like, I was watching the Royal Rumble. They have, uh, not the Royal Rumble, Survivor Series, and uh, they've got some, like four giants. It's just oh yeah, a couple of guys. Yeah. These guys are again, but that's how our roster was back in the mid nineties. And I, I flew into Stanford. That's the first time I'd met Vince. He never saw me wrestle. Uh, signed me basically, uh, well, completely on uh, Gerald Briscoe's word. Walked in, met him and JJ Dillon, and Lisa Wolf, and Vince threw the contract down, and he said, "This contract means nothing, but I guarantee the handshake behind it." And and I. That's all I need to know. I mean, those contracts back then were, you've, I'm sure you've heard of them. They were 10 guaranteed appearances with $150 guaranteed for each appearance. So it was a $1,500 a year contract. Now, no one made that. I made, you know, a good living uh, from the day one when I got there. But there was the downside was was horrible. Vince also told me, he said, and I beat the government. I'm scared of nobody. That's when he just beat the government. And I just thought, you know what? This guy's telling me he beat the government, which he did. I knew he had. And he's telling me the only thing worth something is his handshake. I thought that's good enough for me. Never dreamed I'd be there. That was 95 that I'd be there 26 uh, going on 27 years later. Uh, and heels didn't last very long. We, you know, we stayed two or three years and then they'd cycle somebody else in. And I figured I'd end up in Japan and, you know, wrestle in the last 10, 15 years of my life in Japan, but things changed. The business changed. And uh, because of that, I've been there ever since crazy and vince had a, a secret weapon our buddy jerry mcdivity who had a great secret weapon to beat the government he did i got to <laughs> testify in a case uh with jerry mcdivity uh being the uh the uh, lawyer and he is impressive man he is 
the words can't describe how good that man is. I saw him in action for about four or five hours. I saw him just destroy a couple of lawyers. He's, he's an impressive guy. He might be one of the smartest guys I've ever spoken to. Just listening to him and the way he answers questions and reacts, like, wow, this guy is way above my level. Like, he's one of the smartest guys I've ever talked to. And he's a good guy. You know, Jerry's a really good guy. He's just a nice, affable guy. But he's got that, you know, that Will Rogers type look about him. You know, it's just kind of the good old boy. And, you know, he's smarter than everybody in the room. But he he, he pretends to just kind of, you know, go with the flow. He, he, but he's a step ahead of everybody. He's impressive to watch in the courtroom. I've never really seen a lot of lawyers in courtrooms, but the difference between him and the guys that were suing a WWE at the time when I was testifying in this one case, it was a quantum leap. For sure. With uh, Jerry, going back to Jerry Briscoe, is he the best scout they've ever had? Because I always hear his name come up like, oh, he he discovered this guy or he put Vince onto this guy. He's got to be their best scout ever, right? Uh, he's up there. Obviously, JR, the count is up there too, but Jerry's yeah, always been Jerry, great talent. Yeah, Jerry was the guy who was the one that would go out and scout guys. He's one that he, you know, he loves going to wrestling tournaments anyway, being an old wrestler and a great wrestler. You know, he's, in, he's in the, uh, uh, Tons of different Hall of Fames for amateur wrestling as well, including the all-century team for Oklahoma State, which is pretty remarkable considering how many great wrestlers they've had in the you know hundred year plus years they've been in existence. Yeah, ton. Uh, so yeah, Jerry Jerry's by far I think the most active and the best guy. You know William Regal does I think a great job now, and I'm not sure if he still does, but I know William Regal does a lot of scouting as well. They got a whole scouting uh, department now, and uh, I think you know I. I from what I've saw at the Survivor Series, they do a pretty good job. Definitely. So with you as you're there, what did you think of that generation, the new generation? Because that's really kind of what they called it when you were there. What do you think of, of that crop and like where, where you guys were creatively? Or are you just trying to get your foot and you're happy to be there? As far as the roster itself in 95? Yep. I thought that's the greatest roster maybe ever assembled. Uh, you know, I look back in hindsight and see that. I don't know if I thought that then. Uh, but, you know, you look at you had all the people of the Attitude Era, uh, except for, you know, a couple guys. Maybe the, the Rock wasn't around and Goldberg wasn't around. But for the mo most part, the guys were there. They were in wrong characters, but they were there. You know, they had the, they certainly you could see the talent. I remember at WrestleMania, it was the Iron Man match with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels. And I'll tell you how I felt about the, the entire WWE at the time. I remember watching that match and literally thinking, I don't belong here. It was just, it was the greatest spectacle I'd ever seen. When Sean repelled from the ceiling, he and Brett had that incredible 60 minute match, went into overtime. It's just, it was one, it was one of the greatest events I'd ever seen. And I just remember thinking, I, I shouldn't be here. I, I don't, I don't have the ability to be here. I don't have the talent to be here. I need to go back to Japan and, and finish up my career. That's, that's, that's remember, that was a very distinct memory. In fact, I could, I could almost, Feel it today from when I was sitting there at the Anaheim Palm watching that. You didn't say that to anybody else, though, did you? I didn't tell anybody because I still <laughs> didn't pay. Actually, and I think it was the next night I had my first live ma uh, Raw match with Undertaker. And I remember sitting out there, and I was still thinking the same thing. And the the, the, the they used to use lighters, you know, instead of the cell phones. All those lights come on. And Dutch Mantel looks around at me, and he could tell I'm panicking. And he, he and I'm not trying to try not to sell it. And he goes, just be aggressive, just be aggressive, just be aggressive. And the first thing I do is get the Undertaker in the corner, and I'm waffling him. I mean, just waffling him, one punch after another. And he, he looks up, and he goes, do I owe you money? <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know it. Uh, uh, great. I've just made the top star mad. <laughs> and now I'm really done. 
of course he was joking. Thank goodness we had we had a good match thanks to him. And I got to I got to stay for a while. They always say you know locker room leader, but he's not like the over over the head beat the guy with the hammer. Like I'm the leader around here. He just has a presence about him. Is that basically the gist that he's a locker room leader, but he doesn't need to say he is. It's just the presence. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And he was then. Uh, you know, he'd been there for a while already then, and headlined a you know, ton of pay per views and, and all that. But he was then. You know, there's some guys that just have that cool hand Luke about him, and everywhere he's been, you know, he's the guy that people will will see the you know authority to because he's that type of guy. And you know, he doesn't abuse it. He he's a, he's the guy you won't charge. I mean, he, he's he's a terrific leader in, in any respect, whether it's the locker room, whether it's the boys out on the town, whatever it is, he, he's, he's a terrific leader. He's a good human being. He's a smart guy. Uh, and he generally makes really good decisions. I say generally, I never seen him make a bad one, but he makes good decisions. Your buddy Dutch claims to have created wrestlers court. He said that was his invention, his idea. I don't know. Dutch is a little bit of a storyteller sometimes. I know you know that as good as I do. Wrestlers court is undertake. Usually the judge, you're usually the prosecutor or how did that usually work? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Always. Uh, Taker was always the judge. Now there was times that if Taker wasn't there, uh, triple H, I know filled in one time when we had uh, Teddy long at court in St. I think it was, uh, no, it was, it was Nashville, Nashville. Uh, when we took him to court and May young was his defense attorney. <laughs> One of the greatest wrestler courts ever, but yeah, Taker was always the judge. I was a prosecuting attorney. And then the Godfather or Kane was the bailiff. And then the, whoever was on trial would have to come up with some type of elaborate defense. They were always guilty because it was wrestler's court. You know, you were, I'm not going to take somebody to court that's not guilty. They, they say Taker's the hang, hang, hanging judge because he's always hung over. So, <laughs> yeah, we, we had so much fun in wrestler's court. And it was the boys looked forward to it. It was something that for two or three weeks the guys would look forward to. They'd always be well attended by the boys. They were always a lot of fun. The guys were really creative in both the uh, defense and the prosecution. You know, you'd have character witnesses that would get up out of the blue that you try to surprise the other side with and have out, all kinds of outlandish stuff that would go on. It, it was a lot of fun. And then there was some summary judgment by the undertaker because they were always guilty. Uh, and then he'd rule out the punishment, whatever that was. But it's usually something that benefited the boys. It was beer for the boys. Me and Ron took Teddy. It was fried chicken for us because me and Ron both like fried chicken. It was something that benefited the boys and, you know, kind of got us got us together. Seems like Teddy Long is always in wrestler's court. I don't know. I always hear stories he's always in wrestler's court. What's going on, Teddy? He's you know? the cheapest man ever walked on God's green earth. That's why. <laughs> Cheap bastard, yeah. <laughs> So he's, he's a wonderful guy. He he is so much fun. And when he was in wrestler's court, it was the best. When he brought in May Young as his uh, defense attorney, and Teddy, what happened was is when when Viagra first came out, Teddy had some doctor that was getting some samples or something. So one of the boys asked him for it, and he sold it to him. So we took him to court for selling free Viagra <laughs> to the boys, and then May gets up and says. I don't know why you boys need this Niagara. <laughs> it was it was awesome. He's making a profit. He can't do that. He got it for free. That's exactly right. Oh. He can't do that. Damn. Teddy rode with me and Ron for years. He still owes us trans for almost every trip we've ever been on. So Undertaker, perfect guy to kind of, you know, be not the locker room leader, but just also the judge. And, you know, he's the fairest, right, of all the guys? He's the fairest. And he's also, you know, probably the most measured. You know, he'd think about it. He'd be—he's very creative. So he's very creative in both leading the courtroom 
and also with the, the punishment phase and all that different stuff, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, we we really enjoyed Wrestler's Court. Are you surprised with Undertaker how, you know, they did documentary on him? He was so quiet for all these years. I know, obviously, he's retired now, and that obviously it's probably, he's probably like, oof, now I can stop playing the character. I can open up a little bit. Were you, though, surprised to see that? Because he was so guarded for so many years. He was so mysterious. You know, to the fans. I am, yeah, I am surprised. I'm very happy about it. Uh, he's a he's a really smart guy. I mean, no, nobody could go that long in, in a character like that and transform that character several times into several different iterations, end up back, basically back at square one, with the same character after so many years and still be as over as he was from day one without being very smart. Uh, he's also a lot of fun. I've played golf with him a ton. I've you know gone out with him a, a ton. He's a good guy. And I, what I love about the fact is now people are starting to see what we knew all along. You know, he wasn't just, a locker room leader because he was the top guy for so long. He was a locker room leader because he was who he was as a person. And I'm really happy that people get to see that. He's got a wonderful sense of humor and he's a really smart guy. He's very interesting. I'm glad that he's uh, jumped out of that character and allowing people to see him for himself. And I'm sure he enjoys it, you know, cause he never got to do that. You know, that, and that's a burden, you know, to go do an interview and okay, you got to stay in character. You can't, be yourself. You can't be entertaining. If something funny pops into your head, you can't say it because that's not in character. Now he just, I saw him with Kevin Hart doing something uh, cold as balls or something. <laughs> I just saw a clip of it just before I came on the show. It looked hilarious and good for him. And he's getting to do that. Yeah. It was like during the pandemic, he had the last dance with the, the bulls and the last ride with the undertaker both done so well, but it was like, wow, it's such a cool experience to, you know, we didn't really know. I mean, we saw the Bulls, but to get that backstage presence from them, but then to really get behind the scenes with Undertaker, who never did interviews and stuff before, that was so fascinating. Great job by WWE uh, production. He told, me a story one, he told me a story one time. I never heard it tell anybody else. Uh, he was, you know, he never let anybody see himself, you know, no matter what happened. You know, when he had the, the ear cut off in, in, in London and flew back, that's one of the reasons that he, uh, choked out Kurt Angle <laughs> was because uh, he didn't want to hold the boys up on the charter, so he waited till he came back to have surgery on his ear, which that's that's pretty cool to do. You know, you wonder why a guy's the locker room leader. That, you know, you lead by example, and that's when he was you know messed up on pain and all kinds of stuff. He looks up and Vince and Kurt are wrestling, and he grabs Kurt from behind, and you know that's that's the famous story of, of him and uh, him and Kurt Angle. But he told me a story one time he came into TV and he was hung over, you know, I don't know if him and Godfather had been out uh, all night or, or all month, but he, he decides he's going to find a place to lay down. He goes into one of his caskets. So he lays in one of his caskets and he goes to sleep. Well, those things aren't made for air as Bobby Heenan always says. So he wakes up a little bit later, he's hot, he's sweating and he opens up the casket. And he realized in the meantime, people have gathered around the casket, just talking. No, no, it had nothing to do with the casket, just backstage talking. And there are people that were guests of the show, not not internal people. And as he sat, as he realized what it was, he threw the casket open. He sits up, gets out, walks off, and then leaves. And they're looking at him like, oh, my God, it's real. He really yeah. is. He sleeps in a casket. Never That's smoked. awesome. That's awesome. That's like the ultimate, like, holy crap, that's a real character. Oh, my God, I thought he was a gimmick. Oh, my God, that's awesome got to be a little scary though if you're sitting there and all of a sudden he pops out of you like oh damn i would think it would be i've been in a couple of those caskets i, I didn't do very, very well in casket matches so i i never enjoyed it i wasn't claustrophobic i was a little bit claustrophobic i know i was more, a little more claustrophobic than i was worried about just the, the casket the casket didn't bother me but 
<laughs> those things are not are not comfortable being inside them and, and locked. Yeah, I would imagine that's pretty scary. Like, oh my god, because you're not in control of who had to open it, right? I mean, somebody else got to open it for you. That's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Most of them, they, they try to make it, you know, where guys don't get too scared. But you never know. Back in the day, guys ribbed you all the time. So you never you never knew what was going to happen. I, mean, I think it was the Brooklyn Brawler got locked in a bathroom one time for like five hours on a bus trip. And I think we're in the UK. You know, you, you always went to the bathroom on the bus and you'd stick your heel in the door where they couldn't close the door completely. Because if they did, they would duct tape it. They'd put, you know, they, they, you'd be in there the rest of the trip. And that's what happened to Brawler. Yes. Oh my God. Uh, I always hear like, you know, rib stories, different stuff. I think they're hilarious. I love like stuff like that is, is great. You were a big ribber or were you a, a part of like, you know, doing some big ribs? I, yeah, I enjoyed them. I loved them. I, I, and I didn't mind them being pulled on me. I, I just, I enjoyed entertainment. And so, you know, I enjoyed the elaborate ribs. I didn't enjoy, you know, I never wanted to want to, you know, uh, tear up a, a personal gear or something. I didn't think that was a rib, I, but you know, the, the, the big ribs, you know, the, I always enjoyed doing, we had a uh, big, I've told this story before we had big show one time we're overseas and as he's coming out, it's me and Kurt Angle in the ring and his music's playing. And in the middle of it's, Hey, now I'm an all-star. And Kurt Angle says, what is that? I said, that's Shrek's theme music. <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of rib I love. I, I enjoy yeah. I, I thought they were fun. It was uh, fun to me. You always hear you know, stories of guys. He'll beat me up for the next fifteen minutes, but it was fun. Uh, oh, yeah. It was fun. It was fun when he got real mad, red faced. I was gonna say you always hear stories of, of just you know, fun ribs. Like could could be Owen and it could be Bulldog. Like just fun stuff. But I always get a crack at it, those things. Just they're you know, they're not really hurtful. They're just something funny to pass the time or to you know make everybody on a long tour give everybody you know like a little pop or you know a smile for being on a, a long trip. Yeah, that's how, you know, guys got bored. You know, we didn't have the internet. We didn't have cell phones. We had just had each other, you know, so we didn't get a call home very often. It was just us on the road. And, you know, you didn't have the proliferation of cable TV like you have now. And so when you got to the hotel, everything's pretty much dead. You know, sports games are over. There's not much to watch. And so guys just were craving entertainment. And that's how a lot of those ribs started. You know, I never enjoyed the the ribs and th thankfully I never got it done to me. Uh, you know, the cutting of the ponytails or the loss of the eyebrows, yes. which I always figured they'd get me with the eyebrow, but I, nobody ever got me. So I was, I was happy about that. And I wasn't one that would, would do that. Cause I didn't want that done to me. Yeah. There's the infamous uh, one, two, three kid, his Hasbro figure. If you look at the cover, he has no eyebrows. Pa apparently Mr. Perfect got to him <laughs> before they did the shoot. <laughs> Guys used to put band-aids over their eyebrows when they travel on long trips. So the guys would have to take the band-aids off uh, to get to them. They figured they could wake up if that happened. It was, a, it was a tough world back then. I mean, guys were always pulling all kinds of ribs. Uh, you know, you, you name it, they, they, they would pull it. I did have gear missing several times, you know, bull rope be missing. And then I'd find it in the back with a rose on it, you know, it's it good. I mean, come on, stuff like that's, not worth getting upset about. In right. fact, you know, I'd rather people be doing that than, you know, sitting around, sitting on their phones doing nothing. It's amazing, go with you. Like you mentioned how long you've been WB, really, 20 plus years. You went from the new generation era to the attitude era where, you know, you and the APA, acolytes first, but you, they put you and Ron Simmons together. What a change. Kitty stuff, adult stuff, hard hitting. I mean, the attitude era, I mean, that's like, my 
wheelhouse as far as just growing up being a fan in that era, attitude era. You can't really beat it, but you had to be there. Yeah, you did. It was an incredible time. Uh, I really thought I'd missed the era of uh, WWE when I went. When I got there, uh, just like I thought I'd missed it in Texas. You know, I, I got to Texas after the Von Erichs had their incredible run. Right. And you know, we were still selling out Sportatorium, but mainly they're giving away free tickets. You know, just to get beer and parking. You know, and so payoffs weren't that good. And it wasn't the heyday anymore. You know, it wasn't the heyday of Kerry and Kevin and the Freebirds. You know, it was yep. just kind of hanging on. And then I went to uh, WWE and I felt the same thing. You know, I thought, man, I, I missed it all. You know, this was after Hogan and, and WrestleMania six with the warrior and the warrior had left and business was terrible then. I mean, absolutely horrible. We couldn't give away tickets. Uh, and, you know, the guys that were on top then were on top later. So it wasn't them, you know, it just, everybody was in, you know, wrong characters and the attitude era hadn't started. And then when that happened, it was an unbelievable time. We every building that we put Steve Austin's name on sold out. It was unreal. Now we had an incredible cast around him, you know, from the Undertaker, and then just shortly after was the Rock, DX, the great tag teams, you know. It, but it was an incredible era, and it was crazy television. It was whatever you wanted to say. I remember one time uh, somebody asked, her, "Are we on delay?" And he said, "Yeah," and he said, "GD." This <laughs> is like you got to be kidding me. You, you don't even have to ask to clear that. I remember somebody used the F word one time when they said, are we on delay? And and, you don't even have to clear that. I mean, it was crazy time. It was, and it was really, it was really fun television. It was the guys being incredibly uh, entertaining and creative, but it's also creative uh, pitching ideas and laying the groundwork for the guys. So it wasn't just the guys, you know, coming out with incredible promos and different stuff. They were creative guys, but the creative at the time, allowed them to be able to do that and set the table for them to be able to do that. It was an incredible time in wrestling history that I don't think will ever be replicated. And you had to be there. I hate people go, Oh, if you go back, it's not as good. No, you had to like live it and be in the place. I mean, I used to just go to random house shows with my buddy and they'd be sold out. I went to, we were just talking about the other day in Philly, random Sunday night heat taping, 20,000 people were there because Austin was in a dark match against rock undertaker Kane and boss man was the referee. We had to go to see it. And there's 20,000 people sold out. I mean, there, you had to be there. We had on Sunday night heat one time, Tommy Blanche was a writer and he was just incredible. He, he and uh, Brian Gewertz was, was a terrific, terrific writer, really creative guy. Uh, Tommy though, did a lot of the Sunday night heats and, and he would do a theme throughout a thread throughout the entire show. And we did a 4.1 one time when me and Ron, I think we're chasing kind time a four one on Sunday night heat. And it wasn't, wow. it wasn't even a major show, not even close to a major show. You, know, you couldn't do that now on, on a major network. You know, it's just a different time. Uh, you know, obviously, television is different. How you watch stuff is different. Social media didn't exist. The internet existed, but not in the form that we have it now. But what an incredible time to be able to draw that kind of ratings on a minor show. Crazy. Where did the APA come from? Because obviously you're the acolytes. You're with the Ministry of Darkness, with Undertaker, but then you become the APA, the Acolyte Protection Agency. And you and Ron are just like, you know, scene stealers, killing it. It came from uh, Vince McMahon was seeing me and Ron drink some beers on my birthday. My birthday was, uh, I don't know when this airs, my birthday is November 29th. So we taped. Happy birthday, by the way. Happy Thank you very <laughs> much. And, and we were in a double shot, not a double shot. We had a shot in uh, Philadelphia and then we're driving down to Baltimore and I'm with Godfather and Ron as usual. And I think Teddy, uh, either Teddy or Flash Funk. And we, we 
have a few drinks on the way down. It's my birthday. You know, everybody's celebrating, having a good time. And me and Ryan get down to the bar. We rarely ever went to the TV hotel uh, just because, you know, it's not good form to go to the TV hotel. You know, too many people repeat things and and things get blown out of context. So me and Ryan usually always went somewhere else, but we didn't have anywhere else to go. We go to the TV hotel. The next day, Vince McMahon calls me in and says, I want to put that on television. And I said, put what on television? He goes, you and Ron. He goes, that's what guys do. He said, you're sitting around just having beers, telling stories, having a great time. He said, that's what guys do. And he said, I'm going to call it the Acolyte Protection Agency. People are going to hire you guys to beat up people for beer money. And that Vince came up with the whole idea. It was all, it was all him after seeing me and Ron on my birthday in Baltimore. That's awesome. And true to life then, you know what I mean? That That's the best character. Sometimes. We had no script, you know, and, and, and again, I, I want to reiterate this, that, you know, it wasn't that the, the writers at the time were bad. They were great. And they would give you a, basically a theme and an outline. And then, you know, we would, we would fill it in. So whether it was Tommy or Brian, whoever it was, uh, they would allow us the ability because they knew that, you know, how are you going to write for two big Southern guys, <laughs> you know, that you have nothing in common with. And so Ron and I had so much fun with those. And when we had guests that would come in from Mr. T to Rebecca Romaine, to LL Cool J, to The Rock, The Undertaker, all these guys would come in and want to do something with the APA. And we, we just had fun. It was just a fun time for us. Russo always says, like, bro, you know, Vince Russo, obviously, bro, I can't write for a 6'5 texting guy. You know, I'll give you an outline. But you're the one that comes up with what to say i think that's like the best wrestling it's like okay we can give you a bullet point or with direction but you know we're, we can't cut the promo you're you know you're jbl or you're ron simmons you, know, you guys are, are the characters yeah and the business has changed I, i'm not bashing the, the current guys i think what they do is great you know i'm not gonna be the old guy that says oh our generation was better i don't know if our generation was better or not you know every generation tends to say that i've always swore that i would never be that old bitter guy that said my generation was better these guys are fantastic our generation can't read scripts. So it wasn't really the option of doing that. You know, our guys, you know, I grew up in the broken in the territories. No one had a script. In fact, they would just say, okay, you got Kerry Von Eric in a, a lumberjack match over Will Rogers on Friday. Give me two minutes. Go. That's all they would tell you. And so when they introduce scripts to, to wrestlers, my generation can't do that. You know, a lot of the current generation can't ad lib. And it's not saying that one is better or one that is worse. That's for you know other guys to, to debate, but there was a reason that our guys didn't work off scripts because we couldn't we couldn't do it. It's almost like what you're used to. They came up in a system where they're basically scripted. That's what they're used to. You guys came up in the territory days. You're not used to that at all. No way would that ever happen. No, it never happened. And we used to do market uh, promos. So you know, literally, you'd sit there, and even in WWE, you would sit there and you'd say, "Okay, you got uh, someone. You got the Bushwhackers in Baltimore." It's a cage match. Give me two minutes to go. Okay, you've got uh, Barton and Billy. Uh, it's a regular tag match. It's in Baltimore. You give me one minute. You know, and they would just and you would just do one interview after another, uh, and it'd be different people. It'd be different matches. Be different, all kinds of different stuff. And you look, you just kind of learn to do stuff on the fly. And so once scripts started coming in, I, I always enjoyed being doing commentary later when I see the old guys come in and they get a script, they look at it like it was written in Greek. Cause it's just, my generation is not used to doing that. So really, if you think about, okay, 
you got the Attitude Era. Then throughout the Monday Night Wars, WWF beats WCW. There's no more WCW, which makes it almost like, okay, where do we go from here? We got to create our own competition. You got Raw versus SmackDown, and then the Ruthless Aggression Era starts. Where does JBL come from? Where does that character come from? Because that was almost like Million Dollar Man meets like J.R. Ewing from Dallas, but he's almost a little bit of Stan Hansen because he's a legit tough guy. Like, where does that character come from? That's where it came from for me. What you just described was the Million Dollar Man meets Stan Hansen meets J.R. Ewing. That's that's the characters that I drew from. Now I've heard Vince be asked, uh, "Did you draw anything from J.R. Ewing?" And he he, he thinks he's, his answer is always no. It's like that's preposterous. He didn't see it as J.R. Ewing at all. Uh, he saw it as as complete. You know, he may have seen it more as a a second iteration of Million Dollar Man, which he probably did. Are more likely saw it as if he were in the ring, how would he be writing television? So, but it, it, I had an idea for this uh, JBL character for some time based upon uh, what you said of, of Million Dollar Man, J.R. Ewing, but also guys I'd seen growing up in West Texas, you know, who were all rich and they'd throw money under people's nose. Everybody hated these guys. And I wanted to be that one of those guys in wrestling because I, if they, I thought if they had that much heat with me, they're going to get that much heat with the fans. And so that's the idea I had for JBL. But I don't know if it ever would have happened. I just got lucky. You had Kurt Angle got hurt. Uh, Big Show got hurt. Brock left the company. And they needed somebody within six weeks to wrestle Eddie Guerrero in the Staples Center. And so it was just a matter of good fortune. Other than if it hadn't been for that, I'd had a torn bicep. I had two hernia operations. I really thought I was retired. And so when Vince called me, I – I just assumed I was going on another overseas tour to promote the Xbox or I was going back to Iraq or Afghanistan or something else other than, hey, we need a main event guy against Eddie Guerrero at the Staples Center in six weeks. That's one of those things where it somehow timing just worked out because the character was awesome. They believe, you know, believable right away. And then you get the feud with Eddie. It just was like the perfect mix at the perfect time. Yeah, and Eddie was the main ingredient that made it work. If it hadn't been for Eddie Guerrero, that would have been a one-off pay-per-view, uh, which you've seen a lot in wrestling history. You, know, you try a guy for, for one pay-per-view, it doesn't work, and you know you can't. It, and you know JBL would have never been heard from again. Eddie took it real personal that he could make anybody, and we were very close friends also. You know, I did part of his eulogy at his funeral. He was an, a groomsman at my wedding, and Eddie wanted me and the character to succeed. He's the one that came up with the idea. He and his brother, Shabo, came up with the idea for the heart attack angle with his mother on uh, Mother's, um, Mother's Day weekend in El Paso in their hometown. And after that footage aired, that's when business took off. Uh, we knew right away. We started selling out arenas. We, we started uh, ticket sales for the Staples Center. Uh, we ended up selling out the uh, Staples Center. But you would see it everywhere you'd go. I mean, JBL got so much heat after that one episode aired. you know, And that was all thanks to Eddie and his brother Chavo. Sometimes you need that great wrestler to make the other wrestler look good, but also almost let other people know how good the guy is. Like Bret Hart versus Steve Austin. It was all like, what is Austin doing? He won King of the Ring, but he's like floundering. What the, Bret's like, give me him. Uh, I want a few with this guy. And then Austin, you know, obviously makes start. It's like Eddie with you. It's like, okay, JBL is really good. Why, why, everybody needs to know he's really good. I'm going to set it off. We're going to have this awesome Judgment Day match. I'm going to be bloody as all hell. <laughs> we're going to be, you know, and we're going to make this so memorable. So sometimes you need that great worker to make other people notice the other great guy. Yeah, and it's also a work in progress with Eddie. I remember we went to Japan during that time, and I was, you know, as soon as I got to Japan, got in the old Japan mindset of 
you know, don't sell nothing, just keep moving. You know, the old Stan Hansen type, Dr. Death, uh, Brody type mindset, yep. you know, which a lot of the big Americans would, would pick up when they went to Japan. And the match didn't work with Eddie. And the, the Japanese fans had become smarter to WWE long enough. And I just, I was miserable after the match. I couldn't figure out why it didn't work. I was so looking forward to being back in Japan and having this huge main event match with Eddie. And it didn't work. And Eddie called me about one or two o'clock in the morning. He goes, you never begged. And I said, huh? He goes, you never begged. He goes, you were never once the coward. And all of a sudden it had hit him what had happened. And I go, oh my God, you're right. And thank God we had a second night. So the next night we go back and the next night in the middle of the match after all this, you know, blood and guts and roaring and stomping. And I, I ended up back and I begged off and you could feel the fans get mad about it. You know, like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> this big, tough guy's beg begging off this guy outweighs by 60 pounds. And the match had heat after that. And that was all Eddie helping me out because it didn't occur to me. And that Judgment Day match, oh, man, on, I guess they call it the Great Muda scale of blood. I mean, that's got to be right up there in, in, in the lore of a lot of blood. I mean, whew, you nailed him, but, man, that – we didn't plan on that much blood. We planned on a lot of blood. We did plan on a lot of blood, but not that much. Uh, you know, nobody would plan on that much. I, I didn't realize how much there was until I watched the match back. You know, I, people said, oh, were you horrified? And I wasn't, not in the, not in the match. After watching it back and just seeing the, the blood gush out of Eddie's head and the pools of blood, it was unbelievable. Uh, you know, Eddie busted me open a couple times uh, with, with the title belt, but you know, I had a bunch of stitches up my head, but it, it not, I didn't believe anything like Eddie. Uh, I, I was shocked when I watched it back. It's one of those things where, you know, red equals green. I think in that instance, I was invested in that feud right then and there. I'm like, oh, geez, like this is this is like legit. Oh, my God, like this is getting crazy. So I was really invested. But I think that obviously leads to Great American Bash and you win the title in the, in the bull rope match. So it, it was kind of the perfect thing to have happen. Were you happy like being the champion? Because they always say like, oh, you know, I'm just the champion. It's a prop. Some of the guys, but some of the guys are like, I'm the world champion. This this means everything. Were you happy not only to win the title, but to beat Eddie? Yeah, and, and the way I got it from Eddie, uh, you know, the first match at Judgment Day was, uh, to me, th that was what I was so proud of because Pat Patterson came in and laid out the match for us, and I don't remember what he laid out. It was uh, it was the same type idea. DQ, I think it was the DQ finish right. Pat laid yep. out. It was DQ finish we did. I think Pat laid out a DQ finish. And as he walked out, I could tell Eddie didn't like something. So I said, Eddie, what's wrong? He goes, I don't like it. And I said, well, what don't you like? He said, I don't like any of it. And I said, any of it? And he said, no. And I could tell he was really unhappy. And so I went to Pat. I said, Pat, I need to talk to you. I said, uh, Eddie didn't feel it. And he said, which part? I said, any of it. <laughs> I said, he doesn't like any of it. And Pat looked at me. He goes, John, I'm just trying to help. And he goes, if you guys have been working something on the road and you guys think you have a better idea. And he said, if, if, if Eddie can do this, he said, do what you think's best. We went out there without a finish. We went out there without one spot called. We went out there without anything. I mean, it was, it was unbelievable. You know, wrestling Eddie, Eddie couldn't go over match in the back. You know, so a lot of guys couldn't. Uh, but when he got out there, it was a feel. It was like when Shawn Michaels would come through that curtain, say in 96, 95, 97, right in that area. I mean, it was like an electric pulse went through the arena. Eddie was the same way. He would get out there, and all of a sudden, he backdropped me on the table. Do this, do that. It's, it's incredible 
what would come to his mind in that. He just had a feel for it. And so the one thing I'm most proud about was how we did it. You know, we did it, uh, you know, I say our way, but we also did it mainly Eddie's way because he had, he had the one that not only had a vision that we could go out there and do something great, but also he had enough confidence to say to the office and to a guy who invented the Royal Rumble, I don't like any of this. And that, that to me was incredible. And Pat Patterson, I mean, to his credit, I love Pat and love him for this just as much. He said, I trust you. Go out there and have a hell of a match. And so we did. And so when I got the championship, you know, if I'd have got it younger in life, I'm not sure I would have appreciated as much as I enjoyed it having it then. I really enjoyed every day of it. And I enjoyed every day with Eddie. I wish we could have worked longer. I wish he'd have lived uh, and we could have had another run together, which, you know, we would have, you know, as, as you do, you know, you always bring stuff back and do a retro throwback. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, one of the reasons I say I enjoyed it because I got to work with some of the greatest talent in the world. You know, if I had been out there trying to pull teeth with guys who couldn't work, maybe it had been different. I mean, I got to work with Undertaker, Booker T, Cena, you know, and he was great then. He was great when he first came in. I got to work with so many much great talent that that was really pleasurable to be able to do. I was say, then you become a wrestling god. 300 days, I think it was 280, but basically 300 days as champion. But I love that gimmick. It was so good. But then it's almost like you're paying it forward. Like, okay, you guys want to get the Cena kid over? I'll, I'll be the, you know, I'll be the memorable moment where he finally wins the title after I, you know, you had a run. You know, Booker couldn't beat you. Undertaker, you just skate away because of Heidenreich. And, you know, you beat Big Show. I mean, you're always finding ways to win. But Cena is the one guy that beat you, which really puts Cena on the map. Yeah, and I forgot Big Show to mention. I, I loved working with Big Show. He was he was such a great athlete, and he was he was a pleasure to work with. Uh, he was so good, and he was so strong, and he he never hurt me, which he could have done. Uh, that yeah. man is he's a true giant, and and it was so much fun to work with a, a big guy like that. You know, I could have just imagined working with Andre. You know, that eighty-one match Andre had with Stan Hansen. Man, that's still one of the greatest matches of all time in the tennis stadium in Japan. But you get to work with a guy that much bigger than you, that's good at what he does. It's just a great dynamic. And then when Cena comes along, you know, the, there weren't a ton of believers in Cena. I don't think there were unbelievers. Uh, but Vince asked me one day. He said, "How is he?" I said, "He's your guy, man." I said, he's, he invents that he's that good. I said, yeah, you know, it's because it's a different dynamic going from say eight minutes to going to 30 minutes. Now I think he had done it with Kurt Angle too, who's a, obviously one of the greatest of all time. Uh, but when I first got out there with him, some guys never make that transition. It's hard. You know, eight minutes is easy. You go out there, you shine the guy, you get a little heat, you go home. You have to really roller coaster for 30 minutes or more. And Cena was never, I never felt like he was in deep water. You know, it was just felt like he, he maybe second generation or whatever it was. He just had a knack for everything. Now, I want to be able to say I take zero credit for his career. He's he's done all he's going to do that all himself. I'm glad I was the guy that was there to hand the title over to him. But every bit of the things that he's done, he, he'd have done by himself. I'm I'm just honored that I was the guy. And you guys had a bloodbath, too. It's funny. WWF not known for too many bloodbaths in that period, but. You had two kind of in a row, Eddie and Cena. Remember, Cena was absolutely covered in blood, too. Yeah, I wanted to show that Cena was a tough guy. I knew he was. I'd wrestled him. You, you can tell when you wrestle a guy, whether a guy can go or whether a guy can't. And I knew he was. I knew he could do that. And, you know, in WrestleMania, you're limited a lot of times, you know, because you, if you don't have some type of gimmick match. And I wanted to show that Cena 
was a guy that could work and do the hardcore stuff, be the tough guy, do all kinds of things. And so I was really wanting that match to be as good as it was, the I quit match. And I just thought John was magnificent. I thought he was just exactly what I knew that he would be. He was. And uh, I was really proud of that match that I was the one on the other side. You know, sometimes people forget the 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 Moroccos that end up being splashed on by uh, Jimmy Snuka. But <laughs> that's OK. You're supposed to forget us. Uh, and again, I take no credit for no credit for what Cena did. But he I was glad I was out there with him. That's so funny because Morocco is like he's always like I won that match, you know. He's like, no, you didn't. He's like, I won that match. <laughs> I think forget. I won the match with Eddie. Uh, that uh, where Eddie splashed me off the t- uh, cage too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's funny people remember that moment. It's like, wait, I won that. What? Eddie missed the the mark by about six feet during practice, and like I say, Eddie was not a practice guy. Uh, Eddie missed the mark by about six feet. And they had a crash pad down. He had never obviously done a splash off the top of the cage. I mean, how many people have actually, you know, fought much less practice one? And he goes, I'm good. I go, what do you mean you're good? I said, that would have killed me. I said, that right there would have killed me, Eddie. And he just starts laughing. He goes, don't worry about it. I'll do it live. And I thought, you got to be kidding me. And he landed it absolutely perfect. And, and, and if you'd have seen his rehearsal compared to the live, you would have looked at it and thought, why in the world are you dumb enough to lay there? And I but I trust Eddie. Eddie says he can do it, and he did it, and he took wonderful care of me. His uh, brother had actually told him to uh, uh, clasp his hands because it, it distributes some of the force, and because uh, he's worried about breaking his arm because he had done that before off of a uh, frog splash. And so his brother did give him a little help, and he had, he had a little extra padding. But I was still being the one that watching this. He was a big guy. Watching him come off that cage was not very pleasant. It's got to be scary. I remember he has WWF really his day re debut. Really, or I guess you say his debut. He came down the five star frog splash, broke his uh, broke his arm. Yeah, yeah. And his brother, I guess Hector, uh, was the one that told him to. to I think he told him to clasp his hands or something. He told him something different to do. And uh, Eddie told me that he goes, yeah, he goes. I feel pretty good about it because Hector. I think it was Hector who told him that. Now, as we wind it down, head towards the finish here. I got to know, what is the biggest misconception about JBL? Because you hear, obviously, your buddies with Blue Meanie, but you hear, oh, he's stiff Blue Meanie, and oh, he could beat up guys if he wanted to. But, you know, you always hear that about some of the guys, like the Steiner brothers or Bubba Ray Dudley, like, oh, if they want to, they'll stiff you, they'll, they'll be a little rough. What is, like, the misconception? Would that be one of them, that you were, like, a little stiff with the guys, when maybe it's more snug than than stiff? Yeah, and, and I, I uh, you know, I saw an interview somebody did, that somebody said that I, that I was, tried to hurt them one time. hundred percent not true. I never, you know, if you want to hurt somebody, it's real easy. They give you your body. You throw them on their head, you throw them on their shoulder or something. Working snug with them is not trying to hurt them. Uh, that's just working snug. And I, I don't, I don't know if it's a misconception, but I took it exactly like I gave it. You know, when I broke in in Texas, guys were, I mean, it was a freaking fist fight. When you're out there with the Von Erics, the Freebirds and Killer Tim Brooks and Murdoch and those guys, I mean, it was, it was a, it was a fist fight. It felt like same when I went to Japan and, and then Europe, I came from very stiff, snug territories and I worked very stiff and snug and, you know, tried to never, uh, hurt anybody with a punch, with anything else, you know, you, you can land a punch pretty hard as long as you're, you know, you're. You missed the, the the nose, the teeth, the eyes, stuff like that. But I took it the exact same way. And so did Ron. You know, I you know, Dudley's are the perfect example. I mean, they beat the living hell out of us their first night in WWE. We beat the living hell out of them their 
turn. And, and we have sugar hands. We've been good friends ever since. Guys work that way. Most guys during my era worked that way. You know, some didn't, and and that's fine. Uh, you know, some guys didn't didn't like that style. I have no idea how they work now. You know, I, I watch them. You know, some of these kicks and some of these punches. I think, good lord, man, I'm glad to be retired. But I took it uh, exactly like I gave. It. Never put my hands up on, on a chair. You know, I just uh, you know what? That's just part of the business. And you had me on, on the show. I enjoyed the physical aspect of it. You know that that was. I just felt like he worked. You know, he come back, he got a few bumps and bruises. I felt like I'd done something. You know, I felt like I'd worked hard for the fans. You know, I had some matches. Uh, I remember with uh, Chris Benoit, uh, we were down in Mexico. And, man, they were 30-minute brawls. I, I mean, I mean brawls. And he liked it. I liked it. And when we left, we felt like we gave their fans uh, their money worth. And I was going to say, you just had Meany on the show not that long ago on, on stories. You, you guys were talking about uh, your history together, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many and I are friends. You know, I helped, tried to help him get booked in uh, one of the Royal Rumbles, uh, the one in Philadelphia. I don't remember the the year. I'm bad with years. You know, it's I don't think it's CTE, but when you wrestled for you know twenty something years, you, you get dates and towns and things wrong. Uh, yeah, we've been friends uh, ever since. You know, we shortly thereafter we made up and been friends ever since. So, what was the reason for the retirement? Did you just have too many injuries and it just like, piled up on you? You had to get out. Yeah, exactly. I I would have I would have never retired uh, ever. <laughs> I'd still be wrestling if I could. I loved it, and I, I broke my back in a match, and then that caused me because I was trying to compensate for the back. I had a couple of herniated discs in my lower back, and I just fell apart. You know, I played uh, football for a long time, and then I went straight into wrestling, and I wrestled a very physical style, uh, and I wrestled in very physical places. Uh, before I came to WWE and WWE style and my body just gave out on me. I just didn't, I just had nothing left and I would love to have wrestled another, how, how many ever years I would have really enjoyed that. But then I realized I couldn't do much and I thought I got to do the right thing. And that was very important to me to do the right thing. And so the WrestleMania was coming up in Texas. The Von Erichs were going in the hall of fame. I thought this is a great time. And out of respect for both Ray and for Eddie, uh, I chose Ray as my retirement match, and I couldn't do much more than 23 seconds. I mean, if they'd have said go three minutes, I don't know if I could have done it. I was physically a wreck, but I wanted to get out there and be able to do the things enough for Ray. I want to make him look, you know, as good as possible. And uh, so it was, re- it was really an honor for me to be able to go out that way. I wanted to do the right thing and and go out putting somebody over because to me that's how you do business. Absolutely. Yes. Any regrets in the business? Anything you look back, maybe wish you did differently, wish you could have maybe happened in a different manner. Yeah. You know, there's always going to be regrets, uh, but I'm okay where I am now. So I'm not sure if, you know, you change something in time. It's like changing a a chessboard. You know, you change everything else that, that, that follows or or is else on the board. But yeah, yeah. I, you know, I was not always, uh, 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 drank too much. (laughs) I, (laughs) I, I wish that, uh, yeah, I wish I could have wrestled longer. Uh, you know, that was part of just, you know, reckless style when I was younger. Uh, and so, yeah, there's all kinds of regrets for the most part, very happy with my career. So when I look back at it, you know what, and, you know, to anybody I've wronged, you know, I've generally apologized. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, those things happen when you, when you wrestle a long time. So, uh, overall, no, but, uh, 
anytime you look back in life, you think, I wish I had done this or I wish I had done that different. But if you did those things different, it might change where you are now. And, you know, I know people say it's a cop out, but I'm OK where I am now. Not even Brawl for All. That's not a regret. Oh, no, absolutely not. I love Brawl for All. I, I wish. Yeah. I don't think I could have beat Bart if I'd have fought him 10 more times. Um, <laughs> I, I just, he, he, he just hit too hard. And that's what uh, Shamrock told me that don't try to stand up with this guy. He's, he's too, too, too much power. Uh, Godfather warned me. Uh, Doc warned me. Uh, I was, I didn't felt surely he can't knock me out. <laughs> and then I, good to grief, almost knocked me into the freaking next decade. But no, I don't regret it. I, I, uh, I had, a, I had a, a really fun time and I won three fights trained really hard. I've never done training like that in my life. And so to me, it was, uh, I had a pleasurable experience out of it. Uh, you know, the, the fight with Bart, I don't, I don't know what I could have done different. I don't think I could have beat him if literally if I'd have fought him 10 more times. That's one of the things people don't realize. Like that guy is tough as hell. He knocked out Dr. Death, Steve Williams for crazy. Oh my God, like, yeah. you know, this guy is tough as nails. When they came up with the idea, Bruce Pritchard called me on a Thursday and said, hey, you want to be in a shoot fight on Monday? And I said, why would I be in a shoot fight? And he said, well, we've got a tournament. I said, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. And I said, why would you do that? I said, you're going to have somebody win it that, that you don't really plan on winning. I said, Dr. Death is not going to win this thing. And he said, well, that's okay. And I said, look, Doc's older. Doc's had a ton of concussions. He's been knocked out several times. He's almost killed himself in Japan. Doc's not the same doc he was 10 years ago. That had been doc 10 years ago. Yeah, doc probably wins it either. You know, I don't know. Uh, him, there were some big, there were some tough guys in the, in the yeah. ball. Uh, but when I, I started training right away for it, and I enjoyed the training. I told Bruce, I said, by the way, I'm going to end up with Henry Godwin in the first match, aren't I? Because they wanted to see two big country boys. He goes, no, no, no. He goes, it's, it's a shoot. Sure enough, I end up with Henry Godwin in the first match. <laughs> Bruce to this day swears it was a, a shoot, but I have my I have my doubts. Yeah, they definitely he set it up. Yeah, he set you up. Doctor Death too, though they should do the UFC style so he can get the grip, you know, to wrestle rather than yeah. put him in boxing gloves. I mean, yeah, that would have been different, different. too. Yeah. Nobody knew Bart could hit like that. You know, Bart hit like a heavyweight. You know, I've talked to Butterbean about it since. You know, Butterbean you know, told all of us afterwards, he went to the WrestleMania party afterwards, said, hey, man, th th I've had 100 pro fights. He goes, this guy was not going to hit me. If he had hit me, he could have hurt me, but he wasn't going to hit me. I'm a professional fighter. You know, that was the difference between a, a really tough guy in Bart uh, and, and a professional fighter. That's just a, that's a quantum leap. Yeah, Butterbean also said, like, he should have just went crazy and, like, went after it. He was trying to actually box a, one of the greatest boxers ever, and Boom, you know, he just got knocked out. It just it was a mistake on, on his part. Maybe a mistake by WBF setting up that match. Because you know, Butterbean fought Mero uh, a year earlier, but it was a you know, it was a work. I mean, they, they didn't really kill each other. So they maybe should have I don't know. <laughs> yeah, Not I thought I think they thought they had a title that they could defend. Because they asked me before the, the the championship match, would you fight either Butterbean or Tank? And uh I'd never owned a home before. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd lived in different places around the world. And I was getting five grand every fight I won. And I got Bart and I were going to split a hundred grand for the for the championship. Seventy five to the winner, twenty five to the loser. I wanted to buy a home, and so I'm thinking, if I get by Bart, I got seventy five grand plus fifteen grand. I got ninety grand that'll pay for my entire house. It was eighty four thousand dollars, and then I can fight either Butterbean or Tank, and I'll get maybe another hundred grand. So I was that's I was thinking about the money. But plus, I was thinking about this is pretty cool to try something that I'd never 
tried before. You know, and I don't regret going out there against Bart. I worked incredibly hard. I trained my ass off for that fight. I will train um, in the Lions Den uh, up in Dallas that uh, Ken Shamrock uh, set up with Bob Mesger, four-time kickboxing world champion. I loved every second of it. I tried hard and went out there against Bart, and I was completely uh, overmatched and outgunned. Uh, You know, I don't know if anything I would have done different would have change that outcome. And, and I'm had no doubt that <laughs> Butterbean would have had, it would have had a very easy time with me, but I would have, I would have enjoyed trying. I would have enjoyed the training for it. I would enjoy trying and trying to do something that I'd never done before. So what's like the legacy of JBL? I know you have the podcast now, which is great. You do a lot of great charity work. You were a great commentator, maybe the Jesse Ventura of your, of your time. What's like the legacy and the wrestling career, obviously the legendary career. What's the legacy of JBL? I hope the legacy, you know, I'm 55 and I, I just turned 55 and I hope that the legacy over the next, however long I get to live, my parents have lived a long time. Uh, uh, so I, you know, by, by going by that, I, you know, I might have a long life. And if I do, I hope it involves kids in poverty. You know, I hope that, you know, when, when I'm dead at whatever age it is, if it's 85 or 90, if I'm fortunate enough to live that long, that people say, oh, he did a lot to change the dynamics and break generational cycles of kids in poverty and set a template, which is very important to me to try to create a template that can be replicated around the world to break generational cycles, which is a thing that has to be broken in, in at-risk areas. And I really hope that's my legacy. As far as wrestling, I'm, I'm incredibly proud. Uh, to to have been in this business for so long and still be in it. Um, I just want to be known as a good heel. <laughs> I worked hard, man. I, I loved it. Popper told me one day, he goes, you know, the last two heels alive, kid. And, uh, you know, obviously we, we, are, we weren't, but it was a very, really nice compliment to have. I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed my time in the sun and that's what it was. And, and if people look back on that fondly and realize that uh, I did a lot to put guys over, put the business over, and I worked very hard. I, I just want people to say, I worked, I worked my ass off every time I got in the ring, every single time, because I, I enjoyed it. And I thought people pay money and they deserve to be treated with respect. And that respect means that if you're tired or hungover or whatever else, you still got to go out there and give them what they deserve. And the fans deserve a lot. And think about it, a combination of DiBiase and Stan Hansen. I don't know if you can get better than that. I mean, that's an amazing combination of guys to throw out there. Well, I was with uh, Ted one time. I, I always tell him I stole his gimmick, which he never denies. And then uh, Alberto Del Rio was there as well. And I said, yeah. three generations of stolen gimmicks. And uh, we all got a kick. I gotta, still got a picture with me and Albert, who, uh, Alberto, who I, I, I like very, very much. Alberto is such a fine guy. He's, uh, so respectful to, to, to both to me and uh, to, the, to uh, all the guys that came, you know, from my generation, a little bit older than him. Uh, it was fun, fun picture. So where can everybody see the, the charity work and, and maybe get involved and, and just give us all the plugs? Yeah, thank you. Memphis Center City Rugby is the charity. Uh, you can look it up uh, on the Internet. Uh, M-I-C-R is what they go by in short. And it, uh, tons of places to be able to donate. I'm going to do a golf tournament this year that's going to be uh, going to have a ton of opportunity to buy memorabilia, to buy merchandise. And they were graded. Uh, I'm part of it, but I say they because I don't do the hard work. Uh, you know, Shane Young and Devin O'Brien and his, their incredible group of people do it. They were great as best return on investment uh, of any charity that uh, one of those groups had looked at. Uh, they do wonderful work with their money and really change kids' lives and break generational cycles. And that's the main 
thing that I that I do with charity now. I still have an interest in what Bubasi Pride is doing over in Malawi. They do incredible work. Uh, my friend Gareth Noakes is the CEO of, of that charity and they just do incredible stuff. As far as the uh, podcast, it's stories with Briscoe and Bradshaw. We're gonna we got a one in the can right now with Honky Tonk. That's really good. We taped it yesterday, and it was, it was a lot of fun talking. Wow, Honky Tonk! Haven't seen him in a while. Wow, he was awesome. I'm telling you, he was awesome. I'm not trying to hype up the the show. I he was awesome. He just had fun and laughed and told stories for about an hour and forty five minutes, and it was stuff that I guarantee most have never heard before. That is great. Where's uh, your Twitter and everything else? JC Layfield is my Twitter, uh, Instagram. I've got, I think it's John Bradshaw Layfield. And, you know, I, I don't do a ton on it. Uh, I use it mainly for, you know, promotion and hopefully some entertaining stuff. I try to never be negative. <laughs> you know, it's hard sometimes when you, you got somebody that tells you you're an idiot, you suck. And <laughs> well, I just block them. I yep. block a lot of people. Yes, smart move. But uh, JBL, thank you so much for all the time today. Really appreciate it. It's been an honor. John, I've been looking forward to coming on your show. Thank you for having me. This has been a John Paz Power Trip production in conjunction with the two-man power trip of wrestling. You could follow us on Instagram and Twitter at two-man power trip. You could check us out on Facebook. You could subscribe on YouTube. You can go to patreon.com slash tmptempire to become a patron and also check out the website tmptempire.com and buy a shirt at prowrestlingtees.com. Two-man power trip where the power lies, brother.